Turkey Call All Access, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation, brought to you by Tetra Hearing. Turkey Call All Access is a digital campfire where we discuss topics of the day, conservation efforts, tips and techniques to better your experience in the field, and our members' stories. Welcome back to another episode of the Turkey Call All Access podcast. This week, we're talking with Kyle Green of the Greenway Outdoors, and we're really covering a lot of fun topics from paddlefish snagging, hunting bison in Oklahoma, and everything in between. We'll have all that in 90 seconds. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring, we head to the woods chasing turkeys, and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us, and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend, if you're a spring turkey hunter, spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. We're here with Cal Green of the Greenway Outdoors. Um, this is the Turkey Call All Access Podcast. And there's so many things for us to cover. Um, Pete and I were, were doing a little bit of a, of a deep dive, just watching some of your guys' stuff. And there's uh, quite a few episodes that I would love to chat about. Um, but I guess before that, why don't you just give us the intro? What are you guys about? Um, you know, when did the Greenway Outdoors start? And uh, sort of, yeah, just give us the background. Yeah, so we we actually kicked off about seven and a half years ago. Uh, the team that was with me then is still the same team that's with me today. Um, I work with my best friend, so I'm very lucky there. Um, but we kind of just pulled the idea together. You know, we looked at the data and we said 60% of hunting and fishing licenses are sold to white males over the age of 55. And the problem with that is if we can't find a way to replace that demographic, then in five to 10 years uh, from now, at that point, it was probably 10 to 15 years, we are going to have this giant drop off in the funding for our natural resources. But it's not just, you know, deer hunting. It's species sustainability efforts. It's fish stocking. We have the Flint water crisis really close here in Michigan where we're at. That's actually being fixed right now by the funding from duck hunting licenses. So imagine that, wow. the, you know, you know that, that's one of the natural resources, our national parks and those sorts of things. And I always use the same example, um, which you guys are going to love. In 1960, the wild turkey was almost extinct in Michigan. 
it very well could have been extinct. We don't know for sure, but it was it was dangerously low. And basically what happened is groups of hunters got together, the National Wild Turkey Federation and those sorts of uh, conservation minded people came together, pooled the resources. And you guys have all those videos of uh, back in the day when you guys were releasing turkeys and finding those little stinkers that are hard to find and uh, and moving them all over the United States. That actually brought the turkey population back. And now as a hunter, I buy my National Wild Turkey Federation membership. I buy my hunting license and all of those funds go towards creating more habitat and more species sustainability efforts for the turkey. So basically, we just want to educate people that by turkey hunting, there's more turkeys. And that is a really tough thing for people to wrap their mind around. Um, So we knew that when that fall off happened, that 60 percent fall off happened, we're going to have a big education problem going on. And unfortunately, uh, mainstream media and different other organizations have, have criminalized hunting and guns for so long that they're working overtime to make sure that when that 60% drops off, there's no replacement for it. Now, the weird thing is the outdoor industry represents 3% of our GDP, which is more than oil, uh, which which should, should shock everyone. Imagine if we just lost 3% of our economy, how much that would just destroy everything. So it's interesting that that's the play that they have. But as we see with organizations nowadays, as long as they have control, they don't care if they burn the whole place down. But when I looked when I looked at all this, I said, man, OK, so I've got my passion in life. I've got my goal in life. I need to replace this demographic so that when that when the clock stops and those licenses aren't bought and those guys retire or pass away or, or slowly trickle out, how are we going to replace them? And you look at Generation Z you look at uh, millennials and you say, okay, what are these people interested in? And we all know it. The first thing is video content, right? Media content, social media, those sorts of things. So we did market research and we said, okay, well, what are their favorites? And it turned out, and this was a little bit of a surprise to me, it still kind of is, even though now everyone seems to be on the bandwagon, is cooking content. That was number one. Mm -hmm. Cooking content was the number one most sought after content with millennials and Generation Z. And second place was reality TV, which has taken a dip over the last few years. But um, that that was the case. So we said, OK, we need to create outdoor content. And me being a perfectionist, I wanted to have the highest production quality, something that was movie theater ready, something that could be put on a mainstream network. I wanted high, high, high production quality. And I wanted to accomplish that reality show aspect. And I wanted to accomplish that cooking aspect. So. We designed the show into five parts. We covered the gear that you need for a hunting or fishing trip. We covered the conservation. So if we're hunting turkeys, we would talk about that Michigan wild turkey fact to kind of decriminalize the hunt in people's minds. We would show them the hunting or fishing trip in a reality show style format. You know, going hunting with your buddies is probably one of the most fun things you can do. The laugh, the jokes, the jabs, all the shots you take at each other, the ups, the downs, those sorts of things. With that, I wanted to really bring that true, funny, you know, inspiring storyline to the show. And then we show you how to cook it. And then the last thing was always a moral lesson that we learned in the field that included a Bible verse. So we kind of incorporated these five different aspects to the show in order to create the content that that millennial and Generation Z audience would accept and hopefully inspire them to get in the outdoors. And obviously with that, it's very... um it's very, we took like a very interesting approach, I guess you would say, in the sense of like, 
we wanted the content to be interesting, right? So we didn't want it to just be a flat out hunt. We wanted all these different interviews and aspects and moving pieces to to keep the audience engaged and also educate so much around the species that we're targeting in each episode and making the hunting or fishing trip, you know, uh, you know, interesting. So we, we, we did it that way. And what we found was the audience really resonated with it. At the time we started out on uh, pursuit channel and then we went to sportsman outdoor network. And uh, obviously now we're able to say that we're launching on history channel so we've kind of gone through the the box because it was the same team that was with me since day one. We have just grown and grown and grown. And my team lives by a relentless pursuit of improvement. Every single day, we take our time and figure out we dedicate an hour of our day to how we can improve as a company uh, from a creative aspect to, to mostly creative, to be honest with you, and also production. And you wouldn't believe the problems we've encountered with a team with no production background, except for I was um, a producer for a TV show. I had got a few Emmy nominations, but it was an indoor studio show. So gave me no help <laughs> to, to what we were working on. Other than that, Ryan was like 16 when he started with us. So no real formidable, um, you know, uh, background in this stuff. So we've taught ourselves every single step of the way. And now we're in year eight and launching on one of the biggest networks in the world. Uh, but it was it was a journey because you watch season one and I just cringe. I, 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 cringe, I cringe at season five and six, you know, um, but that that's really I guess I can't say who we are without saying, like, I'm with my best friends. We're creating this content for a specific reason, and that's to sell more hunting and fishing licenses and more memberships to the nonprofits that are doing the right work. And that's why we have aligned ourselves with the best ones, the National Wild Turkey Federation, Safari Club International. Ducks Unlimited, um, you know, and uh, uh, Trout Unlimited, and then obviously the Bass Pro Conservation Fund, which is the fuel tank for all of these things. Um, so th those are the those are the key partners that we have right now. We want people to join those those groups, and we want people to be educated by our show. And uh, later on this year, they're going to be able to on uh, on History Channel. I can't say the exact dates. Um, but I can tell you it's way sooner than you probably think. And it's going to be like, bam, bam with the announcement. Um, and uh, and for what it's worth, we're going to have a big premiere party in August uh, at the Bass Pro Shops in Michigan, as well as the AMC theaters here. So if that premiere party is coming that fast, then you can assume the content's not, you know, the, the launches are going to be far behind that. I'm just not allowed to say the date yet because things change <laughs> and they may move it and all that sort of thing. Very cool. I mean, it's really, um, I think it's awesome to see that you guys, you know, starting as creators basically from nothing, it's kind of indicative of the, the sort of new media environment where um, those barriers of entries, gatekeepers that previously sort of dictated the sort of messaging, cultural messaging, and even around hunting, um, kind of dictated the cultural messaging through studios and producers and et cetera, et cetera. Obviously you guys still have to interact with that. You're on TV, but um, it's cool to see that, that sort of uh, development that you guys got into this without going to film school or whatever. And you just have been figuring it out. Um, I was curious, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, doing market research and and kind of looking at the way that millennials and, and Gen Z people kind of view hunting in, in the outdoors differently. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about 
um, has that changed even like in the past eight years? I feel like the, the hunting media world is always changing from, you know, like the, obviously the mediator had a huge impact on changing the way that hunting TV and hunting media was produced and consumed. You have other um, shows that, that are emerging, especially with YouTube and, and all just, there's kind of a saturation of like really awesome outdoors content out there. And I was curious if you, if you guys have seen like with your own audience or your own approach um, to how you're telling stories, has that changed much in the, in the past eight years and, and kind of what's your bead on, on the future? Where do you think things are, are going? Well, I, uh, that's a, that's a, a big question because there's a, there's a lot of different pieces to it to unfold. The first thing I will say with the first thing you mentioned was the interactions uh, with the main content. Realistically, the interactions with history channel, which is A&E, which is Disney. So um, it's, it's very interesting. There's in our, in the outdoor block as it sits right now, I have to be very specific in how I word this in the outdoor block right now is you've got mountain men, Swamp people alone, uh, alone being very rugged, and the other two being very um, uh, dramatized. Uh, you know, they're a reality show uh, from a from a different perspective. But that's their that the industry's take on outdoor content. Now, where you have to hand it to Steve Rinella is Meat Eater blazed a trail, right? And I, I'm still fighting this battle even now with how much voiceover I use or how much storytelling I use the, these networks and these people still do not like it, but mm-hmm. Meteor made a path through Netflix that showed it worked because it did really, really well on there. And it resonated with such a big audience. And now he's a household name. Um, so I'll always be grateful to him for that because he really made the path possible. We're really second in line now to, to being able to go to that mainstream level. And I hope that, you know, those are giant shoes to fill, but I hope that we can at least fill some of them. But he he is kind of bulldozed the path. And where he's smart is he's assessed the marketplace and he's like, OK, there is the same thing I did eight years ago. As you look at it, it's like, man, there is a lot of GoPro content out there and kill shot shows. That was ninety nine percent of the market when we entered. So our our passion with our outline was we knew that wouldn't work. Low production quality kill shot shows are not going to work with millennials and Generation Z. And they didn't. Um, and that's why the, the same when we were on Pursuit Channel, when we were on Sports Channel, we're talking to the same audiences over and over again. And I didn't want that. I wanted to step away from it. So what Meat Eater did was showed that true storytelling, um, he's an author at heart, and his storytelling is so good that I always knew that like I said, I want to make our stuff interesting. That storytelling was always going to be really, really, really important to get an audience to actually stay with you. You can put up a cool kill shot of a 15 point buck and people go nuts, but they won't remember who you are. And you didn't teach anybody, but conservation, you certainly didn't bring any new audiences into the outdoors. So where Steve Renella bulldozed that path with storytelling, he brought so many new people into the outdoors. Even though if you really look at his content, it really is geared towards somebody that already hunts or fishes. It really is. But because nobody had told the story before, he brought in such a new audience. Whereas our content, I looked at it and said, we need to storytell, but also be focused on the new audience where people that hunt and fish might not like my show. You guys were one of the only people, I don't know if you got a chance to watch it, to actually see one of the episodes that's going to be on History Channel. But you saw the storytelling in there. You saw the the different interviews. You saw the different interactions with people. 
and you saw the jokes and the humor and that sort of thing, but you can see why it's really geared towards giving all the information to it, to a new person, instead of an old person. I think that's the key. I think the outdoor industry is what the outdoor industry is. They're going to, you have the same talking heads. You've got 99% of the influencers not doing anything because they're just talking to the same, you know, sportsman channel, pursuit channel, carbon TV, those now they're just talking to the same audience over and over again. And you have 1% of the people, which I hope to eventually become, those are the people that are doing these outreach programs. Some of them are doing it in thongs, catching fish. Some of them are doing, you know, bringing audiences in for a different reason. Some people are doing it like Steve with this really unique content. He just released a book as well uh, to engage kids in that next generation. But I think that 1% that is focused on branching out and bringing new people into the industry, those are the people that actually have a future in it. Whereas I think the kill shot shows and the, um, you know, the product pushing NASCAR race, to, you know, uh, end of the episode here. Thanks to all my sponsors, why they're standing over a dead animal for 15 minutes is just dead. It really mm-hmm. is. It really is. It's kind of funny, too. I, I would give a little bit of a props to in the polar opposite way of uh, uh, Steve Rinella is um, Ted Nugent. And mm. I would make a case that Ted Nugent has brought more people into the outdoor industry than anyone ever. And the reason being is because he reached an audience that was into rock and roll that had no interest in hunting and fishing and preached to them about it. And all of a sudden people were picking up a bow and arrow. All of a sudden people were interested in it. And he talked about this Zen and this, this, you know, animal spirit and all these different things. And he talked about it every time. You can't talk to that guy for 15 minutes at a sushi bar. You can't talk to that guy for an hour on a podcast without him going into it. And I'm sure he's, I've met him several times. He's the same way in person. He's a caring, loving guy that is like that to everyone. He gets a bad rap um, because of his political views being so outspoken as well. But I would argue that him reaching out to that audience that was not into hunting and fishing did more for our industry than, than anybody else. So I kind of, I kind of take those two modes, those two different practices and look at that and say, okay, what is the right formula in order for me to be true to us and bring in a new audience that doesn't exist? And I think it's through this is going to those audience that are watching Swamp People, Mountain Men, Duck Dynasty alone that might have an interest in the outdoors, but never really done it before. And then breaking it down for them where they're like, dang, that's interesting. And at least plant the conservation message. So when they go to a a voting booth, they're like, well, these guys got it wrong. Hey, guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring, we head to the woods chasing turkeys. And one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us, and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend, if you're a spring turkey hunter, spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. 
Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. I was going to say, you touched on a, on a very interesting point that I think a lot of times is overlooked, you know, right there at the end, is that a lot of the media that we put out there doesn't, <clears throat> it doesn't have to be just for the hunters and for entertainment value, um, or even for trying to bring in the next generation of hunters. But a lot of times we even have to think of, you know, the, the percentage of the population that hunters represent. And that that is shrinking, you know, there's there's no denying that, um, you know, that is that is constantly going down with with the growth of the U.S. population. So how do we maintain relevancy and how do we keep the, the pastimes that we enjoy? And a lot of times it's through showing the benefits of conservation, things like that. So, I mean, that was one of the things that you mentioned is is at the polling, you know, polling booths. So I think that making sure that the content that, that everybody puts out there is done in a way that that it really does help explain hunting in a positive light because there's I mean we've all been on social media there's far too much negativity out there way too many grips and grins um that are done in you know improper fashions but it's that the, there is a lot of negative media in in what hunting is and so I think having shows that that are trying to help even reframe that is is a positive thing, and then also be in places that other hunting shows aren't. So, so being on a, a place like History Channel does put you potentially in front of other demographics. Yeah, you know, my, it's kind my, of funny that, that that you had kind of mentioned um, and kind of what Pete is talking about the sort of um, their sort of media structures um, that are that are around it are not a big fan of, of hunting and hunting content. Obviously TikTok is like a, a, one of the big ones as a, as a social media platform that's really um, clamped down on that kind of, on anything hunting um, and is, is a challenge to engage with as a platform. And it's, you have that kind of like structural media stuff happening, but I feel like the people that I talk to who are not hunters, um, people that are from the urban core, like people that are not at all part of the sort of core demographic of hunters. There's a, a lot of receptivity to hunting, especially when it's framed in as, as a way of connecting to your ecosystem as a sustainability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's odd to see that sort of, dichotomy between um some of the the way that i think media perceives what people think versus what i think is there's there's a lot more receptivity to hunting than than people maybe realize um at the tops of media corporations <laughs> yeah i i would say that in my in my journey because again we did all this ourselves uh, in my journey of navigating all these different networks and uh, and sitting in hundreds of meetings and getting hundreds of no's and uh, and the reason being behind it, I, there is definitely a core group of people that they go out of their way to hinder us because they do not care what normal people think. 
if that makes sense. Like, I agree with you that there are a lot of people out there that agree with what we think. I would argue that probably more than half of the people in this country would agree that uh, hunting has its place. And even if they don't want to do it, they at least understand it. Um, uh, you know, that that you, you hear that a lot. People like, well, I personally don't want to hunt, but I, I completely understand why it's why it's happening. There is a lot of that. But you look at the, the I think research shows I think research shows that, you know, food and, and other needs like that for hunting. It's well, more than 80 percent. Mm. Yeah. So you look at uh, the problem is, though, a lot of people be like, why? It, I, I think you're right at the 80 percent. The reason why I said because you obviously have the data, but the reason why I say 50 percent is because I think that 20, like 20 percent of that 80 percent or maybe 30 are the people that are like they have like this like connotation at the end of it where they're like, yeah, I agree with hunting for food and stuff like that, but you don't need to be going out there and killing, you know, a giraffe or you don't need to be going out there and uh, you don't need to be shooting that, you know, you, you just shoot mm -hmm. a deer, just what you need, you know, and, and, and those sorts of things. That's not me advocating or for or against giraffe hunting. Although there's an interesting science on it where it's completely necessary that I could get into. But um, I, I do think there's like, you've got 50% that wholeheartedly agree. And then you've got 30% that like agree with a contingency that they want you to follow. And when I, and, and, and even so I'm playing in that 30% by going to history channel. Right. Um, you know, I'm playing with a lot of that 30%. And that's the point. If they're like in the middle where they're like, yeah, you can hunt as long as you, but that's why if you watch the beginning of the bison episode, I am heavy on voiceover because I am decriminalizing like a mofo, you know, I am out there like, here's why they went extinct. Here's what you don't know. Here's why I can hunt them now. Here's why it's important I hunt them now. Here's the value they have. You know, I really go through to like right out of the gate because it's such a that 30 percent that's in the 80 percent would freak at that. You know, what I mean, when they a buffalo, mm -hmm. huh? what do you, do? you don't need to be doing that. You know, even they're extinct. You know, they just don't know what's going on. Um, so I think it's educating that 30 percent. And then the 20%, God help them. <laughs> <laughs> the, no, I, you're definitely right on those percentages. It, it quickly, quickly deteriorates when you get anything past, you know, just the, the normal, the normal deer hunter, that normal hunt where you, you're using it for food, any talk of sport trophy. I mean, it, you're pre predator hunting. I mean, if you get into things like that, so it's, um, it, it's definitely one of those where, if you can get those, as you call them, the, the, the ifs or, but, you know, folks, so even get them changed to where they understand all the benefits. And I think you're on the right track. Can we yeah. talk about your, your bison episode or is that secret? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fine. Um, I think it's going to end up being episode three. Um, did you get to check it out? I did. I did. I watched the whole what thing. Were your, what were your thoughts? genuinely hurt my feelings i would love it <laughs> so there th there were a number of things that i actually really appreciated about it that um so re refresh me again where was the hunt obviously you don't have to give me specifics but what state oklahoma oklahoma that's what i thought um and that's a, it's so interesting because i don't know i don't necessarily think of oklahoma as like a place to bison hunt you know when people say bison hunt i'm thinking like wyoming or alaska you know some of the limited draw tags there things like that but um i really appreciated you had uh you know 
bits of history that maybe don't always make it into uh, the discussions about bison. Um, and you, you brought on some tribal leaders and had them talk about their feelings about it, which was really neat. Um, and yeah, I just, it, it was definitely, I was like, Oh, this is kind of a, a perspective on bison that I don't always see. Um, put out there. So um, I'm trying to formulate this into a question, (laughs) but no, I enjoyed it. It was, it was really fun. And I mean, I imagine it was a totally awesome, surreal experience to be involved in that. Yeah, it it was, it was nuts. And what we really wanted to do with that episode is cover all aspects of it. We wanted to not, again, you know, getting down to the deep conservation. Number one, we needed to decriminalize it like it was our job. I mean, we needed to explain to people how many bison are in conservation herds, how many bison are owned by, you know, on tribal lands, um, which obviously in Oklahoma, there's plenty of tribal lands that own bison that, you know, raise them for, uh, you know, to live. Uh, they hunt them. They some of them sell hunts to them, you know, those sorts of things that's sort of common there. And obviously, Oklahoma was a was a main stage area for bison for so long. Um, And now it's actually kind of funny that it's like Wyoming and Alaska is what you think of. It's kind of silly because it's, Mm -hmm. you know, that really isn't sure they were always there, but that's, that wasn't like where their masses of numbers were. Um, So we wanted to decriminalize the hunt. We wanted to talk about where the numbers were today, but it's very interesting. These, these tags are hard to come by. And obviously you can go to, um, you can go to nature preserves. You can go, you know, there's people that own preserves, that, you know, allow for, you know, sell tags for hunting and that sort of thing. There's places that, you know, you can get in these, like I said, the extreme uh, tag drawings, but your odds of getting them are very slim. And if you plan on hunting a uh, bison in this lifetime, you're probably not going to be able to do it via tag. Um, mm-hmm. That's going to be really, really tough to do. And I, I, I wanted to subtly, but not so subtly, kind of decriminalize that too with the hunters because I will tell you the only thing worse than than people that hate hunting are hunters because geez, oh Pete's man, they want a war over everything. So um, I wanted to kind of there's like this stingy nature around people that go to preserves, uh, hunting preserves or tribal lands and, and hunt that way. But if you ever want to hunt a bison in this lifetime, that's that's probably your only bet. So I do not like when people give people hard times for that. So I wanted to kind of get that little note in there. But I uh, just as much as I wanted to get that note in there. And again, hunters should be celebrating each other. Um, when you have those preserves and people are doing those hunts, it creates a demand for the animal. If there's a demand for the animal, then there's a resource. The animal is a resource. As soon as the animal is a resource and the government believes they can make money on it, then the conservation efforts go up and the dollars get allocated to that species. So by teaching people to hunt it and, and raising demand and having people be vocalized and enter those lotteries and, and do these different things, that is what's going to actually fuel the fire to get the people that need to make the decision to go after bringing the buffalo back to bring the buffalo back. But in that, I also wanted to talk about another side of history that no one's talking about. People think the bison went extinct. Ask anybody. They're going to bring up dances with wolves. They're going to bring up them getting shot. I've read countless books, including by some of my heroes that kind of left this out or at least didn't make a big enough note of it, in my opinion, was the bison didn't go extinct because of white people and it didn't go extinct because of Native Americans. It went extinct because of one of the diseases being Katara malignant fever, 
which is a sheep disease. So white people bringing over sheep. But those diseases that we got into the herd, that's what killed most of the animals. That's what killed the most animals. If you combine everything, the white people killing them just to get rid of the Native Americans, you combine the Native Americans killing them for food, you combine sport killing, you combine all those things. It was actually the, the diseases that were killing the most animals. Nobody talks about that. It's not the story that history wants to be written. White men did it. White men did it. That's all they care about. So to, to I wanted to bring that story in because if we live in that ignorance of not realizing that fact, we still struggle today because the number one problem for bison today is still those diseases. It's not, it's still not anything else but that. So fighting those diseases and figuring that out is the key towards bison future. Um, and that is just, nope, white people killed them. And that's what happened. And in a way they did, because they're the ones that brought the sheep over. Right. But it's interesting to that one disease, the one that I mentioned, not going to try and say it again because I mumbled through it the first time already. But that disease, it will go on a sheep and he'll get a fever for a day or two. If it gets into a bison, he dies so fast that he really can't even spread it to another bison. He'll be dead within like a day. I mean, it's that they just don't have the stamina for that. So it's really figuring that out. And then we talked about some other interesting facts. Like, I don't know if you know this, but bison numbers got down to what we think. The Plains bison got down to what we think is something like 45 left. And the, there's no science behind that 45. As a matter of fact, History Channel gave me a little bit of a pushback on it. They're like, is this verifiable? I'm like, as much as I'm saying it, it is. Because it was like, there'd be people in one town be like, we saw three bison today. And then like a few days later, someone else saw two in another state. And then they would go back and forth. And that's how they figured out that there's like 45. But because of that, there's like no diversity in the species anymore. So mm. um, the scientific name for a plains bison is bison, bison, bison. So we named the episode that because we thought that was funny. Um, but that's the actual, you know, the genus, the blah, blah, blah. It's, it's bison, bison, bison. They now, as it sits, are all descendants of roughly 45 bison. It might be 100. It might be 10. But they're all descendants from those same. So diversity is just not there. So they all they all look alike. And they all have the same ailments and they all have the same good and bad to them. And that's not a good resistance to this disease. <laughs> Do you know, is there any, um, have there been any attempts to to cross like that Plains bison with um, some of the other bison herds, you know, from Alaska or other places where they, they had not been extirpated from to increase I, genetic diversity? I would assume, but I don't know that. Because the other areas, a lot of those bison are are just straight wild, whereas mm -hmm. I think it's something like eighty or ninety percent in uh, you know in the the area that I'm talking about, you know, um, not North America. I guess you would just say United States. I I, I believe that it's something like eighty to ninety percent are owned by either conservation herds or farms. Mm -hmm. So there's very few wild ones. You have like the Yellowstone ones. Obviously, Wyoming, we talk about that, um, but there's very few wild ones. So it would be tough to to do that. Mm, OK, the uh, what? So I feel like that kind of the the story of bison is a, is a good segue into um, we have a ton of uh, sort of sort of new pressures that exist on wildlife, um, whether it's urbanization uh, or you know, seeing issues with decline um, in turkey populations that um, that we're working hard to to research and and, and do work on. Um, I was curious, what was sort of 
out of the your guys' upcoming season, um, I wanted to ask, number one, what was the sort of conservation story that that you found most interesting? Um, and then I also want to get into um, a little bit more of the the fun side of that of of what was the the most wild, interesting experience you guys had, you know, filming this upcoming season. I, that it, it's tough because we won't film unless there's an incredible conservation story. Um, man, it, it would be tough. I think one that is from if you're going strictly off conservation, that kind of hits you in the mouth a little bit. I would say it's probably the moose episode. And that's because we went to uh, Maine and we're in Maine and we hunted an area that was 1600 square miles of I, sort of public land. It's owned by a paper company. Mm. So they do like clear cuts every 10 years and they like position it around this. And I don't know if you can comprehend 1600 square miles. It's big. Um, there's a there's a road that goes through there called the Golden Road. And the Golden Road, they say, because it costs so much to make it, they might as well be made out of gold. But it's a it's a road that runs all the way through May up into Canada. And mm-hmm. uh, it's not patrolled, although I I have to do this offshoot story because it's so damn funny and sad and I hate it. But it's funny. So there is a guy. You're not allowed bicycles in this sixteen hundred square mile range. No bicycles allowed. You're allowed trucks. You know, that sort of thing. But wait, you you're allowed die. trucks, but you're not allowed a bicycle. Yeah. For whatever, for, for whatever That's, reason. <laughs> that doesn't and make golden, any sense. The Golden Road runs the length of the property. So it runs along the, the eastern or western edge of the property. And then all the properties over here, 1600 miles. Out. I'm saying property like that's not the size of a friggin' state. You know what I mean? But it runs along the side of this. And then off it will be like two tracks. But there's no no rhyme or reason to believe any two track is even passable. Mm. We had to bring two spare tires, uh, one for the trailer and one for the truck, because the guy we we're going with, his name's Chuck. He's never gone back here and not gotten a flat tire. Never gone back. So the roads are just jacked. And we got a trailer, that poor thing. I was seeing the hood. I was seeing the roof of it as much as I was seeing the side of it from the, my rear view mirror, you know, just bouncing. It was crazy. But the, um, this guy was trying to sneak into the United States from Canada. And this guy got in and he was like, probably something like 50 miles down this road into the United States. So he like made it, but he did it on a bicycle. So they, they, (laughs) they caught him because he was on a bicycle and that's why he got sent back. And I was like, man, I, I never root for illegal immigration, but that time I like kind of hope for that guy, you know, sometimes you watch cops and you're like, go, 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 you know? Um, but uh, this poor guy, just because he was on a bicycle, got snagged. But that's the the, the level of, um, you know, you're so far back into this property. We drove six hours in just to get to a check. No, we drove an hour and a half in just to get to a check station. Then we're six and a half hours past that down the golden road and down our two track kind of thing. And what was so interesting about this episode was... When we were there, these 1,600 square miles, they right now have a problem with winter ticks. And winter mm-hmm. ticks are not like your standard tick. Their big issue here is not killing animals by the spread of disease. When you hear ticks, you think disease, right? Well, with winter ticks, it's blood loss. Mm-hmm. So, And it's species specific. So these winter ticks are here for moose, right? 
And the mortality rate on calves right now is 80% because mm. of blood loss. Wrap your mind around, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a moose calf, but they're about the size of the biggest white-tailed deer you ever saw. They get spit out a couple hundred pounds. You know, they're big. And even, even after a, a year, they're giant. You know, they're, they're bigger than just about anything else. And they're dying of blood loss because there's so many hundreds of thousands of millions of, of these winter ticks that they get in balls. The animal walks past them, the ball gets on, they reproduce, grows, 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 sucks them dry, kills them. And it also really messes up the moms because their body goes through the wear and tear of being pregnant and the winter ticks and trying to milk. It just doesn't work out. So right now they're all dying off. So this hunt is in place to, there's no like spray that you can put under over, you know, 1600 square miles in order to get all these winter ticks. There's no, it's not like you can run around and shoot all the moose and vaccinate them. You know, it's just, it's not going to happen. So they had to figure out what to do. And because it's species specific, they decided we're going to go in and kill them. Basically all of them. So they go in and wipe out the moose to near, you know, basically get rid of all of them and then allow everything to settle down. And then a couple of years later, the ticks will be gone and they'll start bringing them back. And if you talk to somebody like you're like, how could you shoot that moose? So I was like, well, let me talk to you, you know, and it's, it's because of the network, because of the people in that 30% that we talked about that audience, we're going to be hitting. It will be really, really hard for them to, to, to wrap their head around it. But once they do, there'll be no going back. As soon as they see someone hunting now and they hear this story, like, Oh my gosh, if they don't get rid of all these moose, these ticks are going to start spreading other species too and wipe out this entire area via vampire mode so they have to kill all these moves so they can start over kill them kill them kill them you know and then all of a sudden you got people that were anti-hunting like get them hurry you know and that's the hope is like that story is so interesting so we're part of that and uh we're getting near the tail end of where they've been knocking them out and uh the success rate on the hunt there was very few tags very few tags we're in a lottery got so lucky and the success rate even the people that got a tag not the lottery system, but the people that got a physical tag and went hunting, the success rate was 1.5%. So mm. we're getting to the point now where the numbers are getting pretty low. Um, the Department of Natural Resources, the people we work with there, believe they're not as low as it may seem because the hunters that get tags are lazy. They drive the roads looking for a moose and they get out and shoot one. That the moose have gotten smart, that they're hunkered down in the swamps and the places people don't want to go, which obviously I'm willing um, so we were able to harvest one, but um, they're getting the numbers down right now. I think that story is interesting because then people are like, wow, you have to get rid of these moose in order to save the moose in the future and other animals, too. OK, you know, you got to get on board with that um, unless you love ticks. And I don't see a lot of people with tick shirts rolling around, but there's plenty with moose shirts. So I would hope that people at least understand it. Going to start a new organization, Ticks Unlimited. Yeah, I fundraising will be difficult. There's not a moose organization, is there? I don't know of one. But that's that's great. That's a great point, Pete. Because so all the money funding fixing this issue comes from the sale of the hunting licenses. So they're not cheap. They're not cheap. But that that money is used, you know, for programs like this. So it's like oh, because he bought his hunting license, because he participated, the moose will have future. 
you know, and, and it might take 10 years. You know, they're certainly playing the long play on this, but it's very sad. Very sad to see that happen. Um, we actually, when we shot our moose, this is a little fun fact. We let it sit for like an hour, hour and a half. I dropped her in her tracks, so we didn't, there was no tracking. We let it sit for an hour, hour and a half before I even gutted it because ticks know that the host is dead and they'll, 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 they'll get off of the animal. So by the time we looked her over, there was a, like, like we, I think we found one on her, but you would assume there was a lot more. Yeah. Now the, uh, the, the sale of the, the moose draw stuff up there in Maine, I, I want to say they just had their draw back on June 10th. Um, okay. It's kind of like a celebratory thing. Uh, I put in for it every year. Again, it's one of those, you know, lucky might get, might win the lottery one day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, the odds were very little. I think there was in the zone we're in. I think there was like two out of state tags, and we got one of them. And mm -hmm. it, I we just it was funny because the guy we went with is like, I put in for thirty years. I'm a resident, never won, and you jerks get one right away. But <laughs> the the adventure of that episode, that episode for whatever reason ends up being our I think our funniest too. Uh, we just laughed the whole time. Uh, we stayed. We found um we found a remote lake in that property that there's not one house on. We didn't see another soul around it. And I'm talking a big lake, all rocky around it. And we camped on like a rocky beach, if you will. And the water was, you know, um, 15 feet away from my window. And at night, you're just listening to it, you know, mm. come right next to you. Uh, we had a couple storms while we were out there. Um, it, we just, we cooked, we lived off land. We're out there for like a week. Um, we had to take a big generator and then uh, run that at night in order to charge all the cameras and run the computer and stuff like that to back up all the stuff. Um, but we did, we did it. We got it done. And I would say that from a conservation story though, that one will be so impossible to argue with, but yet so dynamically in your face hunting that it will be like either off putting or very well received by people, but it being our funniest episode, I hope that cushions the ball a little bit with that 30% audience. So it'll be interesting. I, I, I'm, I have no idea how that's going to shake out. And I think we're, I think we're using it as our premiere episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right out the gate. Let's start with that one just to yeah, give your audience the, the taste of the, the most extreme and then go from there. Yeah. Yeah. As far as like um, most fun episode, I'd have to say hunting with the National Wild Turkey Federation was the most fun, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> um, there, is a, there is a great turkey episode and um, we ended up harvesting. We had the craziest morning um, when we were in South Carolina. We we hunted hard, but we just we just never got the right opportunity. And, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a tough area. It's known arguably for having the hardest hunting. Uh, South Carolina is like the source of where uh, we took a lot of birds and then replanted them in other states. Um, even California has some birds that were originally from South, South Carolina. And the area we were in is kind of like the birthplace. And it's funny because those birds were the ones that were brought to Michigan. And the hunch that we kind of der derived from all this was like, it was so hard to hunt these birds there that it must be that all the birds that were dumb and easy to hunt got captured and then transferred to other states. <laughs> but the the ones that survived and passed their genes down were the ones that got to, they hunkered down when all the other states had almost no turkeys left and there was nothing left and these guys survived. So that's the descendants of survivors. Um, 
But we, uh, after that hunt, we were able to come back to Michigan and shoot the descendants of the ones that got captured. And we got three in one morning and it was nuts. It was just the, it was the greatest morning of our life. Even the, I shot one and it was opening day, I believe. I think it was either opening day or the second day. So these birds were completely uneducated, hadn't encountered any hunters. And we had a group of Toms come in and I shot one. And then while me and Ryan were hugging and excited because the episode saved and everything's good. Another one was like still kind of around at 50 yards. And I was like, Ryan, shoot him. And uh, Ryan like leaned out and was like this shooting. And uh, he shot one too. So the camera guy and producer got one in that fashion, which was super cool. Um, And uh, I do attribute that to boss shot shells um, because it was 50 yards and that thing was stone dead. Um, But uh, he he shot one. And then uh, while we were filming all the different, you know, scenes and stuff afterwards, Jeffrey was still out hunting and we heard a gun go off and he got one. And that son of a gun did the best self filming he's ever done in his life. And we got another one on camera. So that was, that was, it was just, it was the morning of a lifetime. So that was probably the coolest. Like we were just in disbelief. And after trying so hard and not getting one for so long and then having just wartime excellence, it was, that was pretty cool. That was pretty neat. So did you see a big difference? Um, I guess maybe walk us through a little bit of, of what your hunt in South Carolina was like. Um, did the birds act a lot differently? Did you just have trouble getting on birds? Um, I would say, and, and Pete was there with us. I would say that, um, the first morning we had a gobbler behind us and you know, when you can just hear mm. it in the gobble in the morning, the throatiness, you're like, that's a mature bird. That is not a jake by any stretch of imagination. That is a gobbler. Um, we had one behind us and he stayed in the tree until like 8 a.m. when we could have, I think shooting time, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was like six or something. And he was still in the tree at like 8, 8.30. So it was like yeah. way late, way late coming down. And then when he came down, we did a couple little uh, um, clucks and purrs and then we shut up thinking that he was going to come in because we were in a blind there and we were thinking he was going to come from behind us because we had like a open field in front of us. And we had the decoys out there and our thought was he would come from behind us because that's where he was gobbling, walk past, uh, you know, us somehow coming into the field to go to the decoys. And he just never showed up. And we stayed till noon. And then uh, um, we went back and had like the best, um, the best breakfast ever. Pete, what's the name of that? Uh, the place that we went to in South Carolina, because they had the best food and the nicest people there. Even look, was Tom, so Tom Collins is the owner of that place. I want to say it was called like. Collins Low Country Hunt Club or something like that. Yeah. Um, but those, yeah, you're right. Those folks down there, big time NWTF supporters, just great, great hospitable folks. Um, I, re- I remember it being super, super foggy one of the mornings, too. That was the first morning, too. Yeah. And I, I'm yeah. thinking that's why he hung up. I'm thinking that's why he didn't come down uh, right away. But yeah, Tom there um, and Smiley. And all the great people there and the the woman's name that does the cook. And oh, my gosh, I want to say it's Geneva, I think. But I don't want to be wrong. But the food there was uh, like remarkable. So if you look up Tom, his last name's Collins, you said, look, him, mm-hmm. look, look him up. Um, if you're in South Carolina and you want to do a hunt, I highly, highly recommend them. Great people there. And it's real hunting. So that I loved. Uh, but yeah, so that first morning, nothing. Um and uh, Jeffrey had a few in the distance the first morning, but wasn't able to get close to anything. The next, And then we did afternoon hunts and we did all kinds of calling, but didn't have a ton of luck. 
and we just kept moving, 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 trying to, uh, um, you know, trying to locate birds. The last, the last hunt, the last morning, we had all kind of close calls. Um, hmm. We had a, um, we, we would like see a turkey in the distance, close the distance, and then another one would be over here. And then one would be calling here and then he escaped here. And we had another one calling back for a half hour, but there was a water in between us. And then we pull up to this one area and we think we're done. And there was a turkey standing there and then scooted away <laughs> and we couldn't get the cameras on. It was like the most annoying of hunts ever uh, the, 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 the very last day. But, you know, that's that's awesome. I hate to be the guy. There's a couple of things I hate saying. One is, well, that's why they call it hunting. And I also do not like saying when you get a deer or a turkey or something and people are standing over it and they're like, well, now the real work begins. I hate that all. So I won't say <laughs> it, but, the, uh, but dang, man, that's why they call it hunting. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. You, so, you yeah, always it, forget that stuff. Once you are successful, you forget like the, the struggle. Cause you're just like, yes, I got it done. And then yes. the next year you're like, Oh, I forgot that I like, did this for like three weeks before I even had a good opportunity. Certainly. Certainly. So I did, I did quick look it up. So it is called Collins low country hunt club in Earhart, South Carolina. And I, I remember we did have a bunch of labs. Mark Hatfield also joined us down there um, as well. But it, I mean, it was even funny um, just looking on Onyx maps or hunt stand, whichever one we had. And one of the places that you guys hunted literally bordered up to the Murdoch property. I remember us, you know, even having conversations about that too. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That's where all those people, I, and it was funny as like, I live, breathe and sleep the Greenway outdoors. So I didn't even know what the hell was going on. So when people said the property, I'm like, I don't care. But when we looked at on X, I was 0.8 miles away from their house where we were sitting. I was like, geez, old Pete's, you know, our property was right up against there. So that was kind of funny. They took down street signs and everything because they had people all trying to go there and get pictures at the house and all that stuff. Um, I'm, what are you guys talking about? I am not in, the, in on this. So the the, the Murdoch uh, murders was, I guess it was uh, the dad oh. finally ended up getting put in. Yeah, the, the dad got sentenced recently, but it was, you know, everything from killing family to uh, to stage in his own attempted murder. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. Um, <laughs> but the trial was going on right before, I believe it was right before Turkey season. They even had a Netflix special on it and everything. Um, but yeah. yeah, so there was a bunch of traffic that was in and around that area mm -hmm. at that time looking for street mm -hmm. signs and everything while we were just trying to find turkeys, you know? It was like 2023's Casey Anthony. That's what it was. <laughs> You're gonna have that. Uh, it, that totally changes the tone of every like snapping stick in the woods behind you in the morning. <laughs> yeah, we had all kind of guns, so that was good. Um, I think Pete would have thrashed somebody anyway. So, um, but yeah, so we uh, we did that, and then uh, this is kind of a god thing too. Is so we went to the National Wild Turkey Federation headquarters. So cool to get to see to everything, and we did all these deep talks on. Um, on doing controlled burns and we had like the different stages and we showed like, this is what it looks like year one. This is what it looks like year two. This is what it looks like year three, why it's important for creating new habitat and all that sort of thing. So we film all that. And we're like, that's cool. We got the information we need and we leave. And then we go to the uh, gun range, uh, the national wild Turkey Federation one. And we're doing some sporting, uh, sporting clays and shooting and all that sort of thing. And then while we're, we leave there, we're pulling out. We drive maybe three, four miles. And Ryan sees in the distance. He's, actually, I think I spotted it. I go, what is that? And it was a huge cloud, clearly a fire. 
And uh, Ryan's like, I wonder if that's a controlled burn. I'm like, what would the odds be that while we're here, there's a freaking controlled burn going on. And uh, um, so we, we all, we all go driving together and uh, um, we kind of follow the smoke and we end up figuring out that it's like coming from this property using on X again. And uh, Ryan's like, drive up the driveway, drive up the driveway, drive up. The-. I'm like, I'm not driving up these people's driveway. And then like everyone jumped. They're like, do it, do it, do it. I'm like, screw it. So we pull up this driveway, we go rolling up and this poor woman, cause we startled her and these people were so nice. Um, but we startled her. She's like gardening and like, you know, women are modest and they're like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. You know, you catch them while they're gardening and stuff. They're not too thrilled with you. I'm like, Hey, we're from the history channel and the green outdoors. We're, we just covered a segment with the national wild turkey federation. And they're like, she's like, my husband's in the national wild turkey federation and quail forever or whatever. And he does all this kind of stuff. He's doing a controlled burn right now down there. I was like, you are kidding me. I'm like, will you take us down there and let us film it? She goes, yes. We went down there and filmed it. They ended up being the nicest human beings on the planet. They were one of his, his uh, dad or uh, grandfather were one of the original founders of the National Wild Turkey Federation, very involved with the group. Um, when I told Pete the name, he knew exactly who they were. Uh, great, great people. Uh, and they, we got to film an actual controlled burn doing it. So now we have that. In, we got the drones up and I'm talking it was at the height of it, it was perfect. And uh, the footage is just unbelievable. So that, that was pretty cool. Um, and matter of fact, you saw just a sneak glimpse of it. And uh, when you watch the bison episode, you would have seen the, the opener. And in the mm-hmm. opener, there's a little scene of it there. Uh, but it was just really, really, really cool. Uh, so that was God helping us, placing us in the right spot to be able to get that last piece of the story. Because now we're not just talking about it. We're showing the darn thing, which is really cool. Awesome. That's right. And you you guys were, were having to book out that afternoon and get back to Atlanta for for your flights. Cause that, I mean, we, we, we kind of put everything together and, and had pretty tight timeframes to work upon. I remember. Yeah. Well, that's, it kind of sucked though. As great as that was, that got us back to Atlanta stupid late. We had Sonic afterwards <laughs> cause it was the only place open. So we got to Atlanta at 1am. Now we had to leave for our flight at 4.30am. But that is just long enough that you're like, I need a bed for two hours. So we ended up having to book two hotel rooms, which, you know, they don't give you a discount. We didn't go to an hourly hotel, if you can believe that. Maybe we should have. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we went to we went to the hotel right next to the airport. So you, we had probably had to shell $300 for two hours of sleep. Um, but it was completely worth it. Everyone wanted to shower and everything. We smelled like fire. Um, and, uh, yeah, we went to that hotel for like two, three hours, whereas – we would have gotten like six or seven hours of sleep if we wouldn't have stopped, but who cares? So, you know, you got to grind and it, it worked out. It worked out to be perfect. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the paddlefish episode because I am a huge paddlefish angler. Okay. Yeah. That one's available now. You can watch it on carbon TV or our YouTube channel. Uh, the paddlefish, I want to say it was episode 30 um, or maybe 20. Yeah, it was 30. Uh, but you can find that if you go to our YouTube channel or the com or Carbon TV, you'll find it there. But go ahead. What's your question? Yeah. So uh, rem- did you say in the episode, was that in Oklahoma? Yeah, I know. It's okay. like we, I like Oklahoma. I like Idaho and I like Oklahoma and nobody talk and Maine and nobody yeah. talks about those three states. And those three states are awesome. Idaho is low key, the most un unknown amazing state in this entire united states period and i've been to 41 of them and that's the best one (laughs) 
You know, Oklahoma, I feel like, yeah, some of those states like Oklahoma, they're like really slept on and they have some really cool opportunities. You can like Oklahoma, you can do bear paddle, like everything. And I, yeah, the, I, I was, I was noticing. So the, the guide that you, you went with, um, he was using Dipsy divers. Um, and I guess for people who are not a like in the world of paddlefish, cause it's this tiny, weird little enclave of, of anglers there's uh like the old school dudes they'll go out there if they're doing it from a boat and they'll have like a cannonball essentially that they put on the the bottom of their rigs where they're jerking these giant treble hooks through the water to try and snag paddlefish because they are uh, filter feeders the zoo and phytoplankton um so you can't catch them with bait um, though some people talk about catching them on chicken, I think it's just on jug lines, and I think it's just luck. You know, they happen to accidentally bump one, but um, yeah. I don't see it. <laughs> yeah, I so for, for the past couple of years, I've only bank snagged, which is its own like thing, um, and is like very physically demanding and uh, and. And where, where did you do that? At? Oh, that's a secret, Kyle. Come on, Missouri, Missouri. So Missouri is uh, it's a little I different than Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, you might, you might. Yeah. Um, there's a because you know Oklahoma has a year round season, but they have, or at least the last time that I, I looked, they have a year round season, but they have a year limit where i think it's only two is that right that you can keep it depends it changes it's it's i believe it's one or two i believe it's two um we all just call it one because it's like a once in a lifetime opportunity i know that they have like two days a week that are catch and release only Mm -hmm. and uh we we say that in the episode um i think it's like mondays and fridays are catch and release only or something like that um and you're allowed one or two per year yeah yeah. And so Oklahoma manages it like they manage pressure a little differently. Missouri, instead of it being we have, uh, I want to say it's about a month or a month and a half. It's like a May, like March 30th or March 15th to April 30th. Um, and it's we have more generous limits, but the MDC also has a very aggressive stocking program for paddlefish where they're putting in thousands and thousands of fry every year um into the system because they don't reproduce naturally you ever seen the little one? cute as hell i got the they whole one so yeah <laughs> <laughs> and their noses are like so disproportionately giant when they're tiny <laughs> yeah you can hold their nose and their whole body just is over there you know like the the nose is in charge you know or their paddle <laughs> their rostrum if you will yeah they're so cool did you guys so um I don't know. There's so many little details about that episode I was geeking out about. Like he was using Mad Cat's rods, which are like I was a little. Uh, if people don't know if, what those are, they're they're like these soup. They're the high end of like custom catfish rods. Um, all of the like big river guys use them. Um, and I it hurt me a little bit to. I was like, oh no, using Mad Cat's like because snagging is so hard on your gear. It's just yeah. such a brutal especially dragging divers because you're essentially dragging like a saucer sized crankbait behind your 
that's functionally what it does is it, you know, makes it dive because it's a flat plane. And yeah, it's a big disc. And it, as you go faster, it digs deeper and it goes like this. And as you pull faster, it gets deeper. So it drags that hook, big travel hook, barbless all the way down to the bottom. So that ideally the line goes over the back of the paddlefish, the spoonbill cookie or dipsy diver goes over the back of the fish and the hook snags into the side of them is the hole. Yeah. It's, um, it's a, it's such a wild way to fish. It it feels like it shouldn't work, but it's hilarious. Like every time you catch one, you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe we actually got one. Like so ridiculous. Yeah. I, I will tell anyone that's interested in doing paddle fishing. That's never had the opportunity before that. I will tell you, go with Brian Baker of Spoonbill Wreckers. He is in uh, uh, Oklahoma. And then when you're there, uh, Chief Billy Friend of the Wyandotte Nation, the Riverbend Casino Hotel. You can stay at the Riverbend Casino Hotel. It's like the only thing for miles. It's so nice. The rooms are great. The food at the restaurants is amazing. They've got a place where you can go for breakfast. There's got a place where you can go for dinner. And then you go out with Brian. I promise you he will put you on fish. That guy lives, sleeps, breathes, and eats that river. It's called Grand Lake, but it's the river system. And he he checks every single day for hours so he knows roughly where those fish are going to be the next day. And he runs a Garmin system on the front of his boat. And it's kind of like really funny to watch, but he's watching on the Garmin system. He'll drive over fish, not putting any lines down. And he looks for schools of the fish that are big. And on the Garmin system, he can see exactly how big they are. If there's, if he sees a few in a group over five foot, that's what he'll aim for. So he'll go over them a bunch of times with the, with the Garmin to figure out exactly where they are. We put all the lines down quick and then gun it to go right over them. And you can see them on the Garmin system because they'll try and scoot away. And you, you're almost like running them down <laughs> um, and you're running them down. And all of a sudden the rod just, and I'm not surprised. Like you said, Brian has the best gear possible. Um, and that's, that's, that's his style. But um, boy, did we catch them fast though. I think we limited in, uh, or we all got one. Uh, me, AJ and Ryan all got one. I think it was like an hour and a half. Wow. Um, and and most of that was like finding them. So he's, he's made like a hunt out of it, which is really interesting with most people is just blindly casting, send as many casts as he can and hope them for the best. Um, to your point, I think you'll find this really interesting. So we just got back from Yankton, South Dakota, just mm-hmm. uh, a couple of days ago. And we were there filming another episode. Um, and it's about Asian carp, obviously the conservation effort there, right there in Yankton, there's a, um, uh, or Nebraska, depending on what side of the water you're on. But there's a dam there that's blocking the Asian carp from going any further. Um, and the area is rich with history. You've got Lewis and Clark. You've got the pet. There's paddlefish in there. And the Asian carp are competitors with paddlefish because they actually eat the exact same thing. And they feed mm-hmm. the exact same way. They just they get in these pockets and they sit just outside the current, kind of like a trout when things come down. But instead of a trout being down, waiting for the fly to come by and jumping up and grab it. They just sit at the surface with their mouths open, just whatever comes in, they grab and they just filtering out the food and they're out competing the native species there. And it's really no good. And it doesn't get you would think it gets a lot of press, but not in the Missouri River. It does not get a press. And there's not a lot of science going on right now to figure out what the like what the I was asking questions um, to like the DNR and stuff. I was like, what's the detriment to sport fish? What's the detriment to this? And they're like, we really don't know. Mm-hmm. They don't, it's not being done, you know, uh, which is not good. So we need to raise that awareness and that sort of thing. So we're there doing that. But while we're there, one of the things, uh, the guy we were with, his name's Aaron Reby and is of Reby Outdoors. And he 
he guides for bow fishing trips and we took our boat, but we took him with us to, to kind of learn the ropes. He's also a professor, brilliant guy, super kind and funny. And he took us out. And, uh, um, while we were out there, he, he actually got drawn for paddlefish tag. And I asked him like, how often do you get drawn? He's like, I would say every other year, every three years you get a, you get a tag, um, you know, for the draw. And he got a bow fishing tag. So he was bow fishing for him. And, uh, um, oh. and, uh, the water was so clear and so low because we haven't had any rain there or in Michigan until very recent now. When we got back, it rained in both, but not before that. The pollen was so bad. Our allergies were like insane. But he actually, he, uh, he, he took a couple shots at a few and didn't get them. But I thought what was interesting there was they were all jet black. The ones we saw were all jet black, oh, uh, which cool. was, which is pretty cool. Um, so that was neat to see. Um, but he, he didn't end up getting one while we're there. Uh, kind of a weird story. We were talking to one of the DNR people that were out there and uh, um, they knew who we were and stuff. So we were t- they were asking us questions about the show and this and that and everything else. And one of the, they, I said, have you had any big problems? I, it's, I don't know. I'm always curious, like, hey, is he getting anybody lately? You know, you're just curious of what's going on. And they said they had a guy that was bow fishing that shot a paddlefish. And he's lucky because it broke his line because he did not have a paddlefish tag and because he shot it on one side, but then drifted into the other state's waters, it would have been like way worse. So he got in trouble, but he would have gotten humongous trouble if the fish didn't get off. And then while we were drifting, we were going down this two days later, we like, it was so fast. And trust me, the current, there's nothing I could do. There's nothing, there's nothing I could do, but we went right over a fish and I looked, I go, that's a dead paddlefish. And there was an arrow in it with a line coming out of it. And it was on the bottom. And I was like, that's, that's gotta be the thing. That's the damn, that we just talked to him, you know? And, uh, but, but as soon as you saw it, you saw it and it was gone. Cause you're going like four miles an hour and then trying yeah. to get back to it and figure out where it was exactly. Cause it was like down and the water was deep and it's just not, not like, what was I going to do anyways? Like shoot it and try and bring it up or something, you know, nothing you can do. Um, but that was, that was uh, a sad, but uh, a weird thing to see. But the paddlefish I saw were all pretty big, but, the fishing, the fishing Grand Lake. I mean, we've caught fish well over five foot there, um, so they they get really big. But Brian Baker, I would highly recommend. And that episode, like I said, is available right now. You can go watch it. And it was just, it was such an interesting way of hunting for fish. Mm-hmm. There was a guy recently in Missouri who shot a new uh, record big head carp um, bow fishing. He was one hundred and twenty five pounds, and like the thi- it looks. It's so wild. It's one of those things where I'm like, I'm like, oh, that would be really cool to catch. Like, I don't want there to be a 125 pound big head carp, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the river systems. But golly, it would be really cool to catch one. Uh, I shot a 20 pounder and it was massive. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's 20 pounds. Like, I don't like a 20 pound fish. Um, it was fine. I was talking to my girlfriend and I was like, I told her I got a 20 pounder. But then I showed her the picture. She goes, what is that? A hundred pounds? You know, it's like fish. <laughs> Fish carry weight differently than we do. You know, they, do. they really do. So a 20 pound fish is massive. I can't imagine. I don't know that I would have the confidence to s- properly identify the fish to shoot a 125 pound carp because I would have been like, there's no way, you know, there would have been too much hesitation. Um, 
you know, it's like you you better be certain if you're shooting 125 pound fish. It's not like you can like sneak it into the boat and then check it. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that I can't. I mean, it's the fight on that kind of that big of a fish on a bow rig setup. Just like what? I, I struggle to understand it because he would have had to been using a very 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 strong bow fishing rig. And those of you who don't know, bow fishing is what it sounds like. You're using a, a archery bow, and on it is a reel. And a line connected to the arrow and the arrow has like barbs on it that like it goes in, but like can't come back out. Well, it shouldn't come back out. But I'll tell you, their skin is not very hard. Um, so uh, we pulled out of a lot of carp. Like we, we, we like they came off. I mean, I would say 30 percent came off mm. um, and the bigger ones came off easier. Um, so it, I just he had to have been using a very, very sharp tip a very, very good arrow. And he must've been using high poundage and it must've been a pretty close shot in order to go through, through enough to connect to something that it didn't just pull back through the flesh because he, I I don't see how he could have done it without going through the other side. And that's a lot of meat to go through with a bow fishing rig, which are typically 30 to 40 pounds and pretty weak. Um, so I, I would have loved to have seen the scenario. Um, and I would guess that after he shot it, there was another two or three people in the boat that also put arrows into it. Um, and mm. I, I would, I would even tend to get, because I just don't see how one arrow, as soon as you hit him, he would spin you out, take your line out. You're done. I just don't mm-hmm. get it. Well, you couldn't, you can't fight it powerfully. Like even if you were strong enough, the the arrow has to be staying in. You're only as strong as the arrow can resist. So very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, you almost need the like the alligator bow fishing rigs for something like that, where, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I want to say that they're a hundred hundred pound test line, but literally it's just a spin-off buoy that that comes off the end of your bow. And you toss that over and then you track it down, you pull it up, and then you get another one in it. And um wow, that's but that, that, that way you're that way you're not you're not using your your bow fishing rig as as your end as point. The yeah. But then, but then you have to go out with Asian carp with the anticipation of dealing with that BS. When you, <laughs> so you know how often you see that. I mean, you are out there hunting for a big one and nothing else at that point. You yeah. know what I mean? Because then, you know, because then it's a whole deal if it's you know. So yeah, that 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 fascinates the heck out of me. We did an alligator hunt too in the season. Um, mm. We figured if you're on History Channel, you gotta right. Um, people, baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and that was interesting. I, I, you know, we, we ended up, uh, we ended up getting uh eight, eight footer and some, there's just so much in that episode, but in that one too is, uh, we, so we're like in this snake infested, like snakes and gators everywhere. There wasn't one minute while filming where we couldn't visually see an alligator, but I will Ooh. tell you good luck, get them to do what you want. I mean, it was, it was tough. We had a giant, I mean, he was probably 12 foot long and he was uh, in this area for a long time. We went over there, set the bait. He came over and was looking at it and we're like, all right, let's get out of here completely. Like, let's leave completely. Come back tomorrow. He'll be on there. No question. And the next day he was still near it, but didn't bite it. It's like, they are just so smart and you do everything you can to try and entice them. The rotten chicken. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> just thinking about oh my gosh baiting the hook um that was rough i mean even the thought of it right now i'm just like my eyes are watering 
Um, bait and the hook with the rotten chicken was really, really disgusting. Um, but we got some gators and we did some cool recipes. But, you know, this in the water, we probably saw 15 gators, 20 gators at any given time. Our, our, we were hunting like a, a lake that could have been considered a pond, uh, just a real big pond or a real small lake. And uh, it was private property and they had gators in it and they were just everywhere. And um, I was so sure that that big gator bit, and I don't want to give too much away of the episode, but I was so sure that big gator bit, I made a bet with Jeff. He, it was his idea, but if the gator was on, he had to either lick the chip. Uh, I'm sorry. If the gator was on, he had to either lick one of the bait chickens or oh swim God. or swim across the lake. Like oh, no. <laughs> and we're talking snakes, gators everywhere. Uh, and the water, the clarity is half an inch. You know, it's just mud water looking. And uh, gators are appearing and just, and we saw so many snakes and so, and there's scar everywhere. It's just a, you don't want to even dip your toes in that thing. And uh, so we were, that was the bet. Or if the if the gator wasn't there, I had to lick the chicken or swim across. And I lost the bet. So I certainly wasn't going to lick the chicken because I thought that was a death wish. So you'll really? see that. If, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say the super option is probably the swimming. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. I would have thought the opposite, but I guess I'm, I, I'm not used right to being here. around gators. Yeah. No, I, I, I trust me. If you smell that chicken, there's no licking it. There's no, there's no way. I don't think I could forgive myself. I don't think my girlfriend would be interested anymore. I'll tell you that right now. Um, but know that you know that I'm here, but you're only hearing my voice because it's a podcast. So you know I survived it, but am I missing an arm? You don't know. So watch the show. <laughs> That's out of frame. Yeah, we we kept that yeah. intentionally. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. You, talk about your heart while swimming. Mm-mm. Nope, mm-hmm. man, that's that me. Now you mentioned that you know, obviously, a big part of the show is just kind of bookending things. You know, you 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 introduce, talk about the conservation of the species, but you're also then finishing up any of these hunts trips with recipes. What are what are some of the most fun things that you've gotten to cook and you know, tease to people to to tune in for? Yeah, we actually. So hey, the way we do it is uh, um, we actually bat, like we group. Uh, do cooking segments so like we'll do like two in a day but we'll do like a week long of nothing but the cooking segments um but so far we've only done a couple one was the asian carp and that was a a stir fry and the interesting thing about asian carp was how good it was oh Mm -hmm. my gosh was good the key to it was keeping the slime of the fish off of the meat but boy was it good we we cut that up made a stir fry with it i would equate it to like really good tasting tofu very mild, but the texture was strange, like a spongy, kind of like a tofu. Um, but I loved it. And then, uh, um, but I'll say my, my secret turkey recipe, since we're on the turkey podcast right now, that one is, is, is the awesome. I have, I've actually told you in private, Pete, but people will see it in the episode. I make turkey wings, boneless turkey wings that, I mean, they're the greatest tasting wings you will ever have, period unprecedented so i would say for teasing that's why i want people to turn into the turkey episode ah. for that recipe i'm not going to give it away now but oh my gosh is it the best recipe i've ever made i and i, I get that from everyone it's everyone's they'll never order chicken tenders or wings from another restaurant again without thinking about these that's a good that's a that's a good tease well the people will keep uh 
keep in tune for that. Was the um I'm curious, did you um did you guys debone the uh Asian carp fillets before you did it? Did you run it through a grinder? Like how did you deal with that? Yeah, so we actually we we deboned them. So they've got a second rib cage. They're very bone heavy fish. But um, we actually, we filmed a how-to. It hasn't been created yet, but we filmed a how-to on how to do it. It's kind of like Northern Pike where you just got to know. Northern Pike are some of the best fillets in the world. But if you don't know how to fillet them, you're going to be like, this is garbage. But no, we filleted it kind of like you would a Northern Pike and got the fillets out. And uh, um, just were very, very careful to not get uh, the slime of the fish on the meat. Um, So you have to have two cutting boards. You got to get mm. the fish out, move it to a cutting board. Do not let it touch. The other thing is Asian carp, when they're eating that zooplankton, phytoplankton, inside their stomach contents looks just like black tar from mm-hmm. that. Do not get that on the meat either. If you do, throw it away, honestly, because mm. um, there's no fix in it. Um, you can't rinse it off. It's just it's over. But if you can get the fillets out by listening to us and doing it the right way, you'll be in good shape. All right. That's I, I have done. I've only ground it before and used it in uh like boudin and things like that but i got i got a question for you you saw my paddlefish episode and you fished mm-hmm. for paddlefish what do you equate the flavor of a paddlefish to that's a i would say it's somewhere in the realm of between chicken breast swordfish and like steak in a weird way uh especially it depends on how you cook it like typically what i do um, if i'm gonna eat it fresh i really only eat it the first or second day uh just like grilled or something like that um because in my experience it gets really fishy after like day three or if you freeze it um i've had a lot of fish where um you know i've I've shot one and, and froze most of the meat and then I unfreeze it and it's, and it's real fishy and I've done it, you know, did everything fish handling wise, like bled it, removed all the red meat that you're supposed to do. But for whatever reason, I think maybe cause it's such a fatty um, fish and, you know, it's like if you handle paddlefish fillets, like your hands get like coated in and almost like a, you know, the grease cause there's have so much fat on them. Right. Um, it's, but, it's it's a confusing texture. You feel as though if you pull the paddlefish fillet, because they have no bones, you pull it out and you feel as though if you squeeze it, you could run it through your fingers like mm-hmm. a fat, like a pig fat almost. Yeah. The uh, my favorite way to cook the fillets is to smoke them. So I, I worked in a fish shop for uh, like three years in college and did a, a lot of smoked fish always experimenting with smoked fish all the time and um kind of the the method that i ended up coming down on is doing a it's usually like a four to five day wet brine okay um oh my sirens passing outside but um yeah i had like a so four to five day wet brine um which for people who don't know what that is that's just water salt brown sugar uh, you can add spices to it i'm not convinced that the like aromatics actually do anything um in your brines <laughs> uh except for maybe like really strong ones like clothes or something like that um but i'll typically do four to five days and then take it out and then super low and s- uh, slow on the smoking and like smoked paddlefish it it's like ham it's fantastic um if you've for people who have ever had 
this is a terrible uh, this is a terrible comparison because it's not something that that people have. But I had it because we happen to have some in the the shop that I worked at. But smoked sturgeon tastes almost identical to smoked paddlefish, and they're both related. And their yeah. roe actually tastes very similar as well, which I typically, if I catch a female, um, I'll turn the roe into into caviar. That's um, neat. Yeah, I've had some years where I've literally had like a gallon of caviar, and I'm just <laughs> like, "What do I do with a gallon of caviar? I have no idea." Uh, Thirsty? No, I'm just <laughs> a little smoothie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I felt as though when we cooked that paddlefish, that the paddlefish, um, I felt, I say in the episode, all I did was cook it over fire. And the idea mm-hmm. behind it was this fish has been around for so long. It was in the waters and Lewis and Clark got there. So this fish has been here forever. People have been catching them forever. How did they cook it? And they probably had salt and they probably had uh, the fish and they probably had fire. So I cooked it that way. I did put a little olive oil on it too uh, to help with the searing. I thought the texture was weird in the sense it was not fishy. It was mm-hmm. uh, very, that's where the steak feeling comes in, but a flaky steak, if that was a thing. It's yeah. certainly not, it's certainly not steak, but it's something in the middle. But I felt as though cooked that way, it tasted kind of like tuna fish in a can, but not in a can and a different texture of it. But I liked it. I li- I liked it a lot. But that was the that was the over that was our 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 thought process on the fish. It was it was it was pretty great. Um, something real quick too in that area, that Wyandotte, uh, Oklahoma area. Like I said, Chief Billy Friend of the Wyandotte Nation is a good friend of ours. There's a paddlefish research center, and you made me think of this with the eggs. And this is another way, like you know, stuff like that works. You can take your paddlefish to the paddlefish research center. They'll fillet it for you. And have it bagged and vacuum sealed for you, or in I think it's in freezer bags, and then you can vacuum seal it after that. All broke down, completely set up fillets, good to go. Bag it, tag it, hand it to you, and then they use those fish for research to find out which ones are being harvested, how old they were, you know, those mm. sorts of things. And then they take the eggs out if it's a female, and then they sell it in order to raise funds for paddlefish conservation. So it's just kind of a neat way to, As to do that. Yeah, they sell it. I believe they sell it to overseas places. Mm. Man, yeah. I would love to peek in on their caviar making process because that is. I know how to do it, kind of. Sure, sure. But there is there are secrets to the trade that are people. People know how to cook. People know how to cook bacon in a frying pan. And then when you tell them it's better in the oven and they try that, they're like, I didn't know life existed. <laughs> You know, perfectly cooked through. It's crispy and soft. Oh my gosh. You know, that's bacon in an oven for you. But people think in a frying pan, you know, they know, sure, they know how to cook it, but there might be that way out there that's just way better. We're going to have some bacon purists in the comments. Cook your bacon on the smoker. Oh, there we go. I'll tell you, I, I cook it in the oven. I put it in at 415 and I flip it at like eight minutes or something like that. And then you just watch it. And uh, then after you flip it, you put brown sugar over the top of it and you let that candy and caramelize on there and you pull that out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. If for all the single guys out there looking for women that like bacon, 
that's the play. <laughs> that's that should be a dating site. Women who like yeah. bacon. <laughs> You'd be swiping left a lot, but you might get a couple rights in there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, before we before we go, Pete, did you have any any other follow up questions or anything that you wanted to touch on? No, I I mean I think we obviously we've covered a whole lot of ground. Um, you know, I, I think just just reiterating some of the points about you know why why it was important for covering conservation and and having that being a huge portion of what you guys are trying to achieve with the show. Uh, I think just kind of leaving people with that parting message for for folks um, about why it's important to follow those pieces beyond just buying your license, because that buying your license and saying that you do or that you're helping with conservation is probably the least of what you can do as a hunter. There's so many additional ways. But, you know, I guess if it's there's a parting message that you have for folks kind of about why why do the extra work, why go the extra mile? Yeah, I, I, because at the end of the day, I would ask everyone this. How well do you think the government operates? How well do you think the government operates? I mean, ask anybody that ask Republican, Democrat, how well, how effective do you think they are with dollars considering our debt right now as a country? I, I'll just leave it at that. So it's these nonprofits, these conservation organizations that are super transparent with how they're spending funding. And National Wild Turkey Federation has an incredible rating for how much they spend on actual conservation uh, versus, you know, BS expenses like some of these nonprofits. You, 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 you go out, there's a website, I don't remember what it is, but you can actually see the grade of nonprofits. And National Wild Turkey Federation always does very, very well. It's because the dollars are actually going back to conservation. You can buy your hunting and fishing licenses. And yes, that goes towards conservation, the species sustainability efforts, the national parks. And it shows that the animal is a resource to help protect the animal. That because if a bunch of people are, aside from just buying hunting and fishing licenses for the funding, it shows how important hunting and fishing licenses are. Now, our people running for public office see that. So they see the numbers of the people that care about hunting and fishing because they're buying their licenses. They don't want those people to hate them. So if you want to control people in politics, we can we control our politicians by showing we care by buying those hunting licenses. Sure. But how effective are they? I mean, we have states like Michigan, our DNR, the decisions they make are not based on science. Uh, there's a lot of bad move, a, a, a lot of bad laws in place there. But then you go to Idaho and you see a lot of good laws there. Overall, there's good and bad in all of them. Buying your hunting license is important for the funding. It's important for, you know, uh, raising awareness and getting those politicians to understand how important it is to us to protect us with the laws. But also, how how effective is it? You know, the, um, there is there is millions and millions and millions of dollars given towards the Flint water crisis. It's not fixed yet and it's not solved, but they have the money to solve it. So that, a lot of times that's how we see the government work. So. When you have an organization like the National Wild Turkey Federation, like Ducks Unlimited, Safari Club International, the ones I'm uh, trying to limit, the ones I'm super passionate about is because they spend the money properly and their only goal is to protect conservation for that species. They're doing hands on work. They're passionate hunters. They're passionate. They're passionate people such as you fellas. That's where you really, really, really want your money to go. And by the way, you should feel a debt to the National Wild Turkey Federation. If you go out and hunt turkeys, you should feel indebted that in 1960, they were basically gone. They're here because of them. Why on earth would you not give your money to that organization in order to make sure they're there for the future? If you're going to go out and hunt turkeys, 
you owe it to the environment, towards conservation, towards the future to buy your National Wild Turkey Federation membership. Yeah, I mean, you're, 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 you're nearly robbing the resource if you don't. And that's my opinion. Mm. You know, I think there's also, a, I think like what Pete mentioned is that, um, you know, there's so many ways that as hunters, we can contribute to conservation, whether that's through um, volunteering for cleanup events or, you know, becoming part of a local chapter of a conservation organization. One of the most powerful things, you know, we can do is just be aware of the needs, conservation needs in, in our own areas and be willing to to go out and and do something organize, you know, you know, maybe it's you need more prairie restoration. Maybe you need that prescribed fire done. You know, there's so many landowners who put so much of their personal time and money into creating wildlife habitat on their their own properties that makes a huge difference in the continuity of habitat and, and wildlife populations. And um, yeah, there's 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 so much beyond just buying your tag it's a kind of an invitation um to hey take the next step like you know what's uh what are the needs in your area what are you passionate about and especially with nwtf it's it's all about you know we want to empower local chapters volunteers um obviously we have our 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 big sort of national conservation efforts that that happen that we fund um but you know it really is just about you know, hunters and, and the organization was founded by, by volunteers and people who just decided they're like, Hey man, we got to do something about this and, and pull together their time and their resources and, and really made a difference. And that's kind of, that's the story of conservation in the U S in general. Um, so, uh, where can people find you? Um, I know you said there's, there's not a release date officially yet for history channel. Um, but, you know, where can people find your stuff? Where they, where should they be looking out for you? Yeah. If you go to the greenway outdoors.com, the greenway outdoors, four separate words, but the greenway outdoors.com, you'll find all of our social media pages. It's just at the greenway outdoors on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Twitter. I think we're just the greenway outdoor. I think we're the greenway out because you sign off characters mm-hmm. for outdoors. Uh, but you can find us on all those locations, but visit the greenway outdoors.com. And then obviously watch for the announcement. We're going to have a big premiere party here in late August. Um, so that that's going to be coming here soon too. We'll, we'll let you guys know more details on that. Love that. It's going to be a wild game dinner and um, it's, it's going to be awesome at Bass Pro Shops. And that's going to be super cool. And then you can also um, just keep watching out. History Channel is going to be doing a lot of announcements surrounding our show. And we got, we, we need as many people to tune in as possible. Tell a friend, get everybody involved because this true conservation message is, is we're really trying to make one last stand. You know, we got about seven, eight years left before those numbers drop off. We're trying to make one big stand. So get everyone, you know, especially people on the fence about hunting and fishing, getting, get them to tune in and, and learn about conservation and learn about this, but also be entertained and laugh their butts off. All right. Well, we super appreciate your time, Kyle, and uh, looking forward to the episodes. So. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. 
Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys, and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us, and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend, if you're a spring turkey hunter, spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. 